Well, we are in the midst of a fantastic summer, don't you think? Beautiful weather. It's, uh, it's not been so hot yet that I've got sunburned on my head, so I'm very happy about that. Uh, but my wife and I and our family, we've been trying to enjoy as much of summer as we can. Uh, a couple of times a week, we'll get out on the back patio, we'll grill out, and I'm not good at it at all, but at least the food is edible. Uh, but it's so much fun to do it. And especially as we grill out, I've been thinking a lot about uh, some of the British food that I miss, especially in summertime, because British people are not known for having good food, and I will admit it's true, a lot of our food really is not palatable, but there's a small group of British foods which I really do miss, uh, which is fantastic. I've got a few pictures of my favorites here. So uh, down there on the left, it's, it's kind of an odd one. It's called Toad in the Hole. Toad in the Hole. And it's, uh, it's a Yorkshire pudding, which is kind of like a, a pastry, a biscuit almost, that has uh, sausages in the middle, and you put some gravy on there, some peas, some mashed potato. It sounds like a terrible idea, but trust me, it is fantastic. It is fantastic. And then, of course, how, how can we talk about British foods without scones? Absolutely fantastic. Uh, but I do want to let you know that for the longest time, especially when I was a kid growing up in England, scones were not really kind of the thing until this show Downton Abbey started. Is there any Downton Abbey fans in here? Yes, a couple. Downton Abbey is kind of, it was the stereotype of what British people, people around the world thought British people were like. And unfortunately now we've become exactly what we were stereotyped because of the popularity of that show. So now I'll, I'll visit England and they have these scone shops and tea time places all around the country. So yeah, so I miss it a lot. I miss it a lot. There was a lot that I had to sacrifice to leave England, a lot. But it's not a real sacrifice, is it? If we talk about the things that I love and that I miss and that I don't get to see anymore, I don't get to enjoy as much anymore, we talk about that as a sacrifice, but it's not a real sacrifice. Not like the sacrifice that we're going to read about in Scripture today. See, sacrifice is a big part of the Christian life. It's something that none of us can avoid. And sometimes we hope that it might be like those British foods, small parts of our life, insignificant parts of our life. But the truth is, God asks us often for the most important parts of our life. We've been going through this series, uh, Hebrews 11, and I want to ask this morning as we look at Abraham once more, what does true sacrifice look like? What does true sacrifice look like? As we kind of go through this list of the heroes of the faith, we've been asking ourselves together as a church in this series, what is true, authentic faith? What does it look like in our lives? What does it mean to be transformed by our faith? And this letter that we're reading this passage from, it's a unique letter that was written to Jewish believers in the early church who under persecution and struggle and suffering were kind of beginning to doubt this message about Christ. And they were asking themselves, should we return to our Jewish roots? Should we go back to the way things were before? And the author of Hebrews writes this letter to encourage them and to challenge them, don't give up now. Don't forget that everything that you have is what your ancestors waited for all their lives. It's what they looked forward to. And in particular, last week we began looking at the life of Abraham, this pillar of the faith who all throughout Scripture, everywhere, his name is held up as this incredible example of what faith should look like. But he wasn't perfect. And in fact, Pastor Brian reminded us just last week that Abraham's life was messy. There was a lot of ugly moments to it. Abraham didn't always go exactly towards what God asked him to. 
Sometimes he took his time. Sometimes he made some very serious mistakes. But despite that, what sets Abraham apart from a lot of other characters is that Abraham was a man who in the end ultimately placed his trust always in the God that called him out of his homeland. We're told in one of the most important lines of Scripture that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. What that means is that despite his flaws, despite his sin, despite his brokenness, Abraham chose to put his trust in God. It wasn't what Abraham did that made him right in God's eyes. It was what he believed about God. He had faith in God. And because of his faith, Abraham had to make a lot of sacrifices, didn't he? He had to leave a homeland that he knew, that he was comfortable in, that he felt safe in, and travel to a new land. Leave his father's household. He lost security and comfort. His family would live in tents the rest of Abraham's life even though he was in a land that God had promised would be his family's. But none of that compares to the sacrifice that God is going to ask of Abraham today. It doesn't even come close. Here's how Hebrews reminds us of what is surely Abraham's greatest challenge of faith. We're told in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This story that Hebrews refers to is found in Genesis 22. We're going to look at it today. One of the most amazing passages of Scripture, but it's also a really hard passage. In fact, Nobel laureate and Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel, who wrote a book called Night, very famous author, this is what he says about this story. He says, God was wrong for asking for Isaac, and Abraham was wrong for agreeing to it. I think, if we're honest, a lot of us can sympathize with Elie, if not agree with him entirely. How could God ask Abraham for the life of his own son? Is this really the same God who's promised to work through Abraham. It's a hard story. It's a terrifying story, but it is also such an important story, perhaps one of the most important in all of Scripture, because hidden in this story is good news that you and I desperately need. And without the news that's in this story, we could never hope to understand why sacrifice is really worth it. So I want to talk through the account together and look at three things. The call of God, the resolve of Abraham, and the sacrifice of the son. Let's take a quick look at the call of God. Now, when I did move to the States, of course, there was a lot of changes that uh, were made for me. But uh, it took a long time before I actually became an American citizen. It was about three years ago now, which I, uh, every 4th of July, I love to celebrate. It gets me really excited uh, we've just celebrated that, and it always reminds me there's nothing even remotely as patriotic in England as uh, the 4th of July. Uh, it, the Queen's Jubilee may come close, but let's be honest, there's no fireworks, so it's not really that great. Uh, but I love that. Now, when I became an American citizen, I, of course, had to take an American citizenship test. And this was kind of daunting for me. I didn't know what to expect, what kind of questions they would ask, and so they give me uh, a kind of a, a preparatory test. So you could go through, and there was, uh, I think it was somewhere about 100 questions that you could possibly be asked, and they would, they would ask you 10 of the possible 100 questions. 
And there were questions about American politics, American history, American culture. Uh, and I would study these and, and do practice tests with Janae, trying to get myself ready. And I don't like tests. I don't like tests no matter what kind of test it is. I don't like this pressure of having to try and prove what I've learned. But tests are really important. Tests reveal something about us. And that's why God is testing Abraham in Genesis 22. This is how Genesis 22 starts. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now I want to help set the scene for us a little bit because a lot of time has passed. Genesis 22 begins by telling us, after these things, God tested Abraham. After his journey out of his homeland, after the birth of Isaac, after promise after promise of God, after miracles and accounts of God's faithfulness in so many different situations, God comes to test Abraham. And he asks for something shocking. Can you imagine what these words did to Abraham? What it was like to hear God say, give me your son, your only son, whom you love. God is not done growing Abraham's faith. It's the first thing that we have to pay attention to in these opening verses. God's not done growing Abraham's faith. For his entire life, God never gives Abraham all of the details. He says, I want you to leave your homeland. Abraham says, where to? And God says, I'll tell you later. God tells Abraham, I'm going to have you and Sarah have a son, even in your old age. And, God, and Abraham says to him, how? God says, I'll tell you later. And here now, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to give me your son, And Abraham might be inclined to say, why? God wants to grow Abraham's faith, to teach him in increasing measure, to trust him, to lean not on his own understanding, as Proverbs tells us, through this incredible, terrifying test. And it's true for all of us that the journey of faith is never over. We never arrive at an adequate level of faith. I'm willing to bet if we really kind of held all of our hearts up here this morning, we'd find holes in all of our faith. Areas where we need to grow in our trust of God. Places where we need to be strengthened. Doubts that need to be recognized. Sins that need to be confessed. Pain that needs to be uncovered and healed. See, God's ongoing work in our lives is to find those things to test our faith. And that's why James says in his opening, um, opening passage of his letter, He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God doesn't want Abraham to be in lack. He doesn't want us to be in lack. And so he comes to test us, to examine our faith. Not for his benefit. Think through this. God's not testing Abraham because there's something he doesn't know. When a math teacher gives me a math test, they want to know, they want to find out, have I really learned the lesson? God knows whether Abraham has learned the lesson or not. Abraham needs to learn something. Abraham needs to learn something about God. Second thing, God grows our faith by asking us to do hard things. Has anything that God's ever asked of Abraham been easy? Has it been straightforward? And here God asks him to do something so incredibly difficult, we might as well call it impossible. To give up his only son. 
The son, mind you, that Hebrews and Genesis tells us is the very thing that God had promised him his entire life. Do you know that to grow in your faith, God will ask seemingly impossible things of you? He's going to challenge you in ways that make you very uncomfortable. But when God asks us the impossible, what we need to remind our hearts and our minds is that God wants to reveal his provision to us. He wants to reveal his goodness to us. He asks the impossible so that we'll learn to trust him. If he asked us the possible, would we go to him or would we just go to ourselves? I don't like hard faith. I like easy faith. I don't like faith that asks too much of me. I like faith that lets me grow at my own pace and in the way I like, faith that's permissive and comfortable and agreeable. But that kind of faith doesn't transform me. It doesn't change my heart. Like diamonds that are created in the most intense pressure, faith that transforms has to be difficult. It has to involve costly things. Things that force us to go to the throne of God and say, God, we need your grace. There are opportunities to walk through faith like that every day. To commit to difficult relationships. To forgive hurtful people to be patient in frustrating circumstances, to be thankful and joyful in seasons of loss and suffering. Last thing that God is trying to teach Abraham is that his most precious treasure doesn't belong to him. God asks for his son, his only son whom he loves. But Isaac isn't Abraham's, is he? Isaac was a gift from God to Abraham. Not to possess but to care for. Do you know that nothing that we say is ours truly belongs to us? God would go on to tell Moses in the law of God, he would tell him in Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest, from the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. God made it clear to his people, he's beginning here with Abraham, but he makes it clear always, everything that they have belongs to him. He is the God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We like to think that our possessions are ours, and and even sometimes we tend to think that our children belong to us, but they don't. They belong to God. And that's why it's our job as parents not to shape our children into who we think they need to be, but to let God shape them into who he knows they need to be. What would our lives look like if we had faith that our possessions, our reputation, our skills, and yes, even our children don't belong to us, they belong to God? And what's Abraham's response to all this? We're talking through these amazing things that God is challenging to Abraham, but what Abraham's response is is perhaps equally as shocking. Let's talk about the resolve of Abraham. You know, I... I'm embarrassed to admit that I'm the kind of person that watches very bizarre shows. And one of these shows that I got into a few years ago is something called Man vs. Food. I don't know whether you've ever seen this, but you can already guess from the title it's a ridiculous show. And it was about someone who would travel around the nation uh, and he would challenge himself to eat either the spiciest foods in America or the kind of largest entrees. And he would go through all these different challenges and it would be 
It's kind of like watching a train wreck. You can't take your eyes off how bizarre this man is, that he goes and he does these things. There was one restaurant he went to where the peppers that he was eating were so spicy that the chefs had to wear gas masks to prepare them. And this man sits at a table and he begins eating these hot wings and almost instantaneously he's crying, he's sweating. But the resolve of this man to commit to this is unbelievable. And he makes it through so many of these different challenges, challenges that you and I would not even want to go near. It's fascinating resolve. And Abraham's resolve in this story is shocking. Listen to what Abraham does when God challenges him to this. He says he rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. I don't know about you, but I am astounded at the resolve of Abraham to obey God in what is an unfathomable request. This is where Abraham's faith was translated into action. It wasn't just a trust that was theoretical, it was intensely practical. I want to highlight three things that Abraham resolved to do and how those teach us something about his faith. First, he resolved to rise early. That's what we're told at the beginning of this section, verse 3. He rose early. His faith meant that he couldn't stand still. He couldn't sit on this request. He saddled his donkey. He got everything ready. He cut the wood. He took this seriously. A three-day journey. It must have been a horrible night after that request. Tossing and turning, thinking about what you were going to have to do, what God was asking of you. Maybe he didn't even sleep at all. Maybe that's why he got up early. Maybe his insides churned. I can only imagine as a father what that would feel like. But as much as I don't know about what Abraham felt, what I do know is that his fears and his questions didn't stop him from obedience. He woke up and he set himself towards what God had asked him to do. This is already a very different Abraham than the one that we meet when God first calls him. You remember when God first calls him and he takes that detour towards Canaan? He takes the long way around. Here is Abraham no longer taking the long way around. Sets himself towards it. The question for us is this morning, does our faith translate into action? Do we set ourselves towards what God has asked of us? Is our trust in God theoretical or does it move us? I'm going to turn the lens here on myself for a little bit because I was very convicted reading this passage of Scripture, asking God to speak through this because what God illuminated is often my faith is a frozen faith that stands still when it should be moving. There's been moments where I believed God called me to be generous. I said that I had faith in that, but yet I held on to my possessions my resources, 
my time. There's been moments where I believed God called me to forgive. I had faith that that's what God was asking of me, and yet I treat people with bitterness and sometimes even slander. There have been moments that I believed God called me to serve others, and yet I spent my time on myself. There's been moments where I believed God called me to holiness, but I didn't want to change my lifestyle. I had a frozen faith. Moments where I intellectually agreed with something, but my life did not portray it. Abraham's resolve should cause us all to examine ourselves and say, where are we standing still? Where are we letting our fears and our questions keep us from moving? This kind of frozen faith honestly, is what has caused so many in the world to question if Christians really believe what we say we believe. And right now, in this hour, as in all hours of history, the world needs people whose faith moves them. Genuine faith that calls us to live out a radical life for Christ. The second thing his faith gave him a resolve to was a resolve to not keep anything off the altar, to not hold anything back from God. Isaac was everything to Abraham, and we don't even have time to start unpacking how important Isaac was to Abraham. As a man that was over 100 years old, this son was the culmination of all of everything that he hoped for. Let me ask you, is there anything in your life that's off limits to God? because there was nothing that was off limits to Abraham. Is there anything that you would hold back? It's such an important question because functionally speaking, whatever it is that we tell God is non-negotiable, really that's our true God. That's what we really worship. That's what has our hope. Jesus says, shockingly, in Luke 14, 26, one of the hardest passages of Scripture, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is using hyperbole here to point out that there should be no comparison between your relationship with him and everything else. He has to come first. And honestly, this caused a lot of people to walk away from Jesus in his day, and it causes a lot of people to walk away from Jesus in ours too, doesn't it? That sometimes God asks us for things that we don't want to give him. But do you know why it's such a poor choice to withhold something from God? It's because whatever we're not willing to put on the altar has the potential to enslave us, to rule us, Think about it, when your ultimate hope is in a person or in possessions or in certain circumstances, you are driven to do whatever it takes to keep that. You fear losing it. You're driven to love people, not for their benefit, but for your own benefit. This is why C.S. Lewis, he says this, he says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God, and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. 
There is so much uh, wisdom in being willing to put what is most precious to you on the altar, to put it into God's hands instead of your own. Last thing that Abraham is resolved to do is he's resolved to believe that God was good, even though he doesn't understand all the details. And along this journey, we get glimpses into this resolve. We see Abraham moving towards Mount Moriah, and even as he goes, he clearly believes that God is good. Do you notice that he tells his servants when they arrive at the place that God's called him to, he says, we're going to go up, the boy and I are going to go up together, stay here, and we're going to worship, and we are going to come back to you. Now, we might be tempted to believe, well, maybe Abraham is kind of changing the details here. He doesn't want to tell them what he's really going to do. He doesn't want to tell them what's about to happen. I don't think that that's true, though, because Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham had faith that God was going to work this out somehow. He's not going to go back on his promises. His command is not going to contradict his character. I don't know what's going to happen on that mountain, but God is going to do something. There's this moment as Abraham and Isaac are climbing the mountain together. Isaac kind of understands something's off. Where's the lamb? So he says to his father, I see the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham tells him, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. This isn't Abraham blowing smoke. This isn't him trying to keep Isaac quiet. This is Abraham showing us his faith, his resolve that God's good. He is going to provide something. He's going to do something. After all that Abraham has experienced, he's learned even amongst difficult moments, God is good. He always comes through. And friends, don't you long for that kind of faith? Don't you in your soul know that you need that kind of faith in your hardest moments, your most grievous moments, the most frightening moments of your life, you can still hold on to the truth. God is good. He works all things together for the good of those who love him. I need that faith. And that's what's on offer. That's what's on offer to me. The knowledge that he is worth my trust. But to receive it, to grasp this gift, we need something else. We need the sacrifice of the son. Genesis 22, 9 through 13 tells us, starting in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to, and bound his Isaac, his son. Laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, stop. Don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham and Isaac make it to the mountain, and Isaac is bound and laid on the altar. This is it. Abraham is about to sacrifice his own son. And by the way, Isaac's about to give his own life, too. Sometimes when we read this story, we think that Isaac was maybe a small boy, six, seven, eight. But think about this story. In this story, this boy, Isaac, travels with his 100-year-old 
plus father for three days. And then he carries the wood for the offering on his own back, Isaac does. He carries it up the hill for Abraham. A six, seven, eight-year-old boy could not carry the wood that would be required for a burnt offering large enough to have a person on top of it. You know that Isaac was probably closer to 20 years old. He's a young man. And you know what that means? That means that there is no possible way that Abraham, a 100-year-old plus man, could have forced a 20-year-old man onto that altar against his will. Which means what? Isaac put himself on that altar. We don't know all the details. God doesn't reveal it. And I don't want to speculate on what Scripture does not tell us. But I want to say this, is that it seems to me like Isaac, out of obedience to his father, is showing us his faith too. But then right as Abraham is about to drop that knife, the angel of the Lord says, Stop! Abraham, don't do it. Hold. Abraham probably wept in that moment, realizing that God was exactly who he believed him to be, that his faith was vindicated, that God really was worth his trust. You see what the test revealed? Do you see what this whole ordeal has revealed to Abraham? God is good. He is who he said he is. His promises are certain. But why, oh why, would God teach him this through such a painful lesson? Surely there was a better way to teach this lesson. Well, that's because even after all that we've already looked at, we haven't got to the true heart of this story. And I know we're running short on time, but friends, this is one of the most amazing moments in all of Scripture. We're told in Genesis 22, starting verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord shall it be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now let's just take a step back for a moment, because this is where this story gets amazing. God in his sovereign power knows what the blessing to the whole earth is going to be. Abraham doesn't. Abraham is called to trust. He hasn't seen it yet. We're told in Hebrews he was looking forward and trusting. But God knows what's coming. God knows what's coming through Abraham's line. And this isn't the only time that God would speak of a son, an only son, that would be called to be sacrificed. Which other son do we know of who would be called to be sacrificed? Which other son do we know of who carried his own wood to the place of his offering? Which other son placed himself on the altar in obedience to his father? And in fact, Mount Moriah, where all of this happened, do you know where that is? It's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It doesn't exist yet in Abraham's day, but it would become the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Which other son do we know who was tested at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem before his offering? It makes me want to weep thinking of what God is showing Abraham. Abraham can't see it, but we can, can't we? 
Matthew 3.17 says, A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is God's Son, His only Son, whom He loves with every part of His being. Do you want to know what this story is really all about? It's about Jesus. Tim Keller says, We have this story so that we have some true human understanding of what the Father did with His Son. God is painting a picture to Abraham of his true plan of how he's going to bless all the nations of the earth. Because the father spared Abraham's son, but he wouldn't spare his own. He was going to put his son, his only son, on the altar. And at this time, there would be no one to call out when that knife dropped. And the grief and the darkness that came because that son was sacrificed. But Abraham's faith would be vindicated again, even after he is long dead. Because as much as Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead, the world would discover that God would indeed raise his son from the dead. So that whomever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. How? By giving us his son. If we start out this story saying we have some moral questions, we don't know how God could possibly ask something like this, we have to finish this story by saying, how could God Give us his son, his only son, whom he loves. We now can turn to God and say, God, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, whom you love, now I know you love me. Because when we see that the Father gives us Christ, we can say, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? (laughs) How... How is it not worth it to put everything we have on the altar knowing that that's what we've been given? What does true sacrifice look like? It looks like a life that holds nothing back because of trust in the Father. True sacrifice looks like Jesus. And friends, I pray for us, I pray for Chapel Street Church that this story, this account in Scripture would kindle in our hearts the same kind of faith that Abraham had. That we would trust God that we would allow him to be our source of all hope, that we would let him himself be the means by which we can have a faith that doesn't stand still, that doesn't shrink back, that doesn't hold back. If you've not come to him yet, if you don't know this God who is so, so good, come to him today. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Whoever prays to him in faith will receive his spirit. He's waiting to show you the same thing that he showed Abraham. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this chance to examine this story, this incredible story, this difficult story, but this beautiful story. Father, we don't want to hold anything back from you. We don't want to let our fears and our questions keep us from moving toward you. Help us, God, therefore, to see that it's not our son that's on the altar, it's yours. Your son, your only son, whom you love. 
your son who you did not spare so that we could be with him, so that we could be through him given graciously all things. Let us see him, let us know him, let us walk with him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.